Gentlemen, uh, why don't we go ahead and get started? My name is Dan Mitchell. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to kickstart this conference by introducing our uh, first speaker, Amity Schlaes, who I've known Amity, I guess, since back in the, at least in the 1990s. I remember we both spoke at a conference in Germany uh, of European liberal parties. And in Europe, liberal means free market, not collectivist like here. And I, we did get a sense of how different Americans and Europeans are because the four Americans who were there uh, were far more free market than the supposedly free market uh, Europeans. But Amity ever since then has gone on to, to big and great things. She's a columnist for Bloomberg, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, She's the author of The Greedy Hand, but most, most relevant uh, for this conference, she's the author of The Forgotten Man, uh, which has been a very successful book uh, looking back on all those fun, joyous events of the 1930s. Uh, Sally told me I only have three minutes, so I'm not going to be able to give you lots of fun insight of my own. Instead, I'll simply turn the floor over to Amity Schlaes. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I won't say much about Dan except for he's, uh, he represents a lot of the energy behind the tax cut movement and what higher praise could there be than that. Um, good, good afternoon. This is a great period for us to be looking at. Um, I have been thinking quite a bit about 1934 1933, in part because of the current administration's references to the New Deal period and those early exciting years, but um, also because I'm working a lot in graphics, and one of the things I've been looking at is the Monopoly board. And as some of you perhaps know, the Monopoly board game was introduced early on in the New Deal in 1930. Four, um, you know the principles of monopoly. Uh, they involve, first of all, uh, most importantly, property rights. Um, there's the occasional time in jail. There are the weird things that can happen, but the accumulation specifically of property and the uh, sustaining of the value of that property is a preoccupation of this game. In 1934, um, Parker Brothers said no to the Monopoly board inventor, um, but by 1935 they had bought the game because they could see that a game about property resonated with a population in a period with a redistributionist, less property-oriented government in Washington. Another thing about the Monopoly board that's especially important, I think, to us is the role of the bank. We all know that kind of intuitively. I'm spelling out something simple for you that you and also your children know, which is that a good bank is one that follows the rules in the books or makes clear whatever rules it has, discretion at the beginning, and then sticks to those rules and does not intervene gratuitously, reduces the scale of the unknown unknowns. So you're left with just a few known unknowns. And what is a bad bank? Of course, a bad bank is one that intervenes, uh, that sets up bad rules at the beginning, that cares less about rules and more about its own discretion, or that arbitrarily or and that arbitrarily changes rules um, or intervenes in the middle of the game. And we all have a sort of 
sum in mind, a share of the work we're doing, the game we're playing, that we're willing to give up to um, just the, the cost of doing business, of having a bad bank. And then there's a point at which we will go no farther. If the bank is that bad, we leave the game. I think this Monopoly uh, game appearance in the 30s was no accident. And you can tell the history of this period, um, what actually what came before it, the 20s, the 1930s, and then a little bit about now in terms of Monopoly and that the Monopoly game is, is relevant uh, to us. It's a fa- this is a fabulous place to do that. I'm talking to people who understand well what I say. And I, I do want to thank Cato. I want to thank Dan. Ed Crane, Sally, who I'm just getting to know, all of you, for having us here to talk a bit about these things at this point in time for the countries. Um, You look at the 20s, and I'm working now on a book about Coolidge and the 20s, so I'm thinking a lot about them, but they're also in the beginning of The Forgotten Man, and indeed any history of the 30s, because to understand the 30s, you have to know the 20s. What are the 20s? The 20s are a period when we had a very good bank. The bank made rules. It was clear what they were. You know, Andy Mellon was Treasury Secretary in this period. It was a stable bank. The banker was not changing. So you want to imagine Mellon, who was first a great career from Pittsburgh, his empire, steel, railroad, and so on, and then a very great career in policy in government because he was higher than Greenspan in his day. Um, It it was said of Mellon that three presidents served under him. A lot of stability, a lot of interest in stability, a very reliable bank, and a bank that didn't want to change the rules too much, too often, and certainly didn't want to have a lot of arbitrary intervention that was well aware of the cost of arbitrary intervention. Um, So when you look at the the period and what transpired, there was plenty of certainty, for example, in in the crucial areas that we look at. Uh, You start with tax. Mellon had a direction on tax. It was one way. It was down. You always knew Mellon would cut taxes when he could. And in fact, overall, if you look at the 20s, there's the certainty of downward movement from those high taxes of World War I bam, 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 like stairs. So he gets down to a top rate of 25%, maybe even for a second, 24% from way up high in the stratosphere. So it was a change, but it was a reliable change from the banker. Of course, we were on the gold standard. So the value of your money didn't seem as if it would change very much. If you were concerned about the bank, you could have a gold clause in a contract, a contract that said you could decide to be paid in ounces if you didn't like where the dollar was the day that the contract was being resolved. And you could set how many ounces on the day that you created the contract or signed it. Sort of very primitive, very effective hedge against inflation in a not very inflationary environment, Mellon. Um, labor price, you knew that that was free. They had a rather sharp contraction at the beginning of the 1920s. Scary contraction. Unemployment went up to 15% for a few minutes. Or you look at for the year, for one year it was well into the double digits. 
how what could employers do? Well, they could lay off or they could cut wages. They had a lot of discretion there. And when I think Leo Hanyan or Ms., uh, Professor Cole is here today, and he may talk to you about that, they had discretion to cut wages, and they did. Flexibility in the workplace, your ability to buy and sell labor if you needed to do so. Again, highly reliable. Um, regulation, not as much of it. Not as many wild cards in the deck of the game. Um, what there was was kind of reliable. You don't want to draw the analogy out too much, but I think of um, there were areas that in, in the 1920s were, of course, heavily regulated. One was due to prohibition, and you knew that if you drew that card, if you, if you drew the jail card, well, you might go to jail, but it was also quite easy to steer clear of the regulation of liquor should you choose to do it. So there were areas of the economy that were trouble, and you could operate in them if you chose, but you didn't have to. And that's important, too. You know there's always going to be some regulation, but can you avoid it should you choose to becomes a material question for the monopoly player of life, the operator. And um, finally, the treatment, uh, most importantly, I think, of business leadership of entrepreneurs. I have a column today actually about Ayn Rand coming out, which I've never, I've never written about her before, but she would call these people prime movers, those people who add value in society with innovation. Uh, two who I cover in The Forgotten Man and who are relevant to us today are Sam Insel of Chicago, the great electricity innovator. And he was. He came out of New York where they believed every man should have um, a generator. Wall Street believed just like he has a yacht. That is, electricity was for the few, the wealthy, and um, generator was part of that. And Insel had the vision of a grid and a central generating station, uh, one of the fathers of our modern system. And when Wall Street turned him and, and Edison down too many times, he went to Chicago and electrified Chicago. And you may know of Insel that he built the opera house there, and it's shaped like an armchair very rationally. The uh, higher floors, it goes very, very high, that house, um, are commercial commercial real estate and the commercial revenues from the office are supposed to subsidize the culture at the bottom. But the other reason it's shaped like an armchair is uh, it's supposed to be like a throne to his wife, who was a, a theatrical personality, a singer, and also because it faced away from New York. So a figure who meant a lot to his city, meant a lot to the country, who changed the country, who went to the UK to teach them how to build the kind of thing he was building here. And the other was, another example would be Mellon, um, who had very, he's often uh, pre presented as a kind of an ideolated figure, uh, dried up Victorian past and so on, nothing having to do with today. The thing about Mellon was not that he was behind the times, but that he was ahead of the times. He was a modern venture capital person. He put money in the firm, looked away, waited for success, helped only when true help was needed, collected the money, and invested in someone else. A wonderful man and very much loved in the, the, across the country. So what happens when, and, and the results perhaps you know, the, 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 the 20s weren't fluffy. They were good. They were truly good. You look at unemployment, well, it's very often below the fives. You look at inflation, well, there wasn't inflation. They were in a, a flat or deflation, depending whose math you use. You look at growth, well, it's in the threes. Well, actually, it's in the middle to high threes. Well, actually, it's even higher because of that deflation that I spoke of. Things were worth more than their 
their numbers said on paper, which is the opposite of our modern experience. Very, very um, good decade in that way. Values seem to, to be there. What, what happens when the crash comes? So the crash comes, the accident happens, the thing that you wait for happens, and the market was high, no question about it, at that 381, hundreds of points higher than it had been only recently. There was an element of too high to that, though perhaps not as high as most of our histories have alleged. Well, there was an international component, a credit component, a monetary component, and even in this room, I've, I've seen these all discussed very seriously and legitimately before. But I would argue adding to the traditional explanations that we have of the causes of the crunch at the beginning and the long duration of the depression that followed, especially there are other factors, and some of them had to do with the fact that the monopoly game had changed. And now at the board, you have a very intrusive big player, a bank who's arbitrary, who changes a lot, and who puts the other players off. Um, tax. Well, we have a certainty of direction under the late President Hoover. First, he did raise taxes, and then FDR taxes are heading up. But we have also associated with that painful certainty, sorry, it was a certainty, up, 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 we have some uncertainties, which is how do you define the way you're going to tax? What is taxation for? Under Mellon, the purpose of taxation was pretty mundane. You taxed to collect revenue to operate the business that you had, which was government, and you taxed very um, efficiently, pragmatically, rationally. Mellon's thesis on tax was what is the rate you charge? You charge what the traffic will bear. You don't charge too high. Long before Art Laffer was around, Mellon understood this well. He was a classical economist, a supply-sider in the old sense. If, if you charge too high a toll, the railway traffic did not come. And that's all it was about. And um, to, to especially Roosevelt, taxation was entirely a different project. It was um, about collecting money in a downturn. Yes, when money, when they get those quarterly shortfalls, just as we're getting now. But it was also about uh, class ret retribution, making others pay. As you know, he's, FDR spoke of people as princes of property. He said, why not let them pay 100% after a certain amount of earnings? Uh, and um, his uh, Bureau of Revenue, it wasn't the IRS, the forerunner, conflated evasion and avoidance. The d old distinction, which had been also um, passed upon by the courts, was entirely blurred. If you didn't pay a lot of taxes, you were bad, even if you were taking the deductions to which you were legally in titled on the issue of confidentiality, which we have now as a protection that was weaker then. So they read people's names over the radio if they didn't like the amount of tax that they paid. Um, there was also an element of um, business cycle management, which hadn't been there as much, at least under Mellon and Coolidge, that said we need to use the tax code to get the economy going, Keynesian, modern, supply side, whatever you want to call it. And the dynamic that was particularly horrible um, and which we, is so familiar to us now is business wasn't cooperating years into the downturn. It wasn't spending as government expected it to and therefore wasn't stimulating the economy. So they pulled together a tax to prod business into spending more and cooperating. And that was an undistributed profits tax.
you want to sort of say that to yourself a few times, undistributed profits tax. And um, in the original debate, when they started, the proposal was for 70% rate. That's to eat away the essence of a business really very quickly. How many years does it take with a 70% tax for you not to be there anymore? So few. It was negotiated down to lower rates, but still it was onerous. So you had the sense you were going to be prosecuted for tax. You had no clarity on what the tax rules would be, and you had a lot of change in the tax law throughout the 30s. Um, I mentioned labor price as a component. There was no sense in the 30s, really, that the labor price could get in the way of recovery or help recovery. Um, no, Nothing from the point of view of the other person sitting at the board. So we had um, at the very beginning, and I think Professor Cole will talk about this, the National Recovery Administration, which had an element of collusion, cartel, looked a little bit to fascist Italy, and in many industries did help bigger firms at cost to smaller. And that is the context in which the Monopoly board game was being drawn that year, 33, 34. Um, in my book, I describe uh, the story of a small family of chicken butchers, the Schechters, and who were losing against the big supermarkets, who now, because of electricity, we had refrigeration, we did, um, were able to prepare chicken and sell it. What would a little chicken butcher who, who slaughtered the, the chicken right there have to fight against the big new companies, um, especially if they were protected by an industrial code generated from this law. And the little chicken butchers fought back. That was the Schechter case I describe in The Forgotten Man. It was the desperation of the small man. One thing the NRA did was drive the prices up, mandate that prices go up. Um, uh, Wagner Act solidifies that, comes in 1935. It's politically wrong, maybe even economically wrong, to lower wages, even if you need to, even if you feel like it in the New Deal period, and you do see wages way above trend for the century, especially given the brutal unemployment regulation. Well, we know, is it really true that Mr. Pitt is here? Saw him for a minute. Hello. The creation of the SEC um, in, in that period, and there were great bonuses from the SEC. It established the U.S. in the international marketplace as a venue of transparency and some reliability, made the game a little bit easier, made us as a bank a little bit more reliable, but it had a prosecutorial aspect, that discretion, that was definitely disturbing to business, especially as it ratcheted up um, at certain points in the later 30s. I'll just read you one sentence from the period from Benjamin Anderson's history, which is, to me, the history, economics and the public welfare. He was the chief economist at Chase at the time, and he wrote it in his diary every week, what was going on. In one case in 1937, an agent to the commission visited the executor of a large estate to inquire why he had sold a quarter million dollars worth of securities in a single morning. The agent was informed that the executor was selling to get cash with which to pay the United States estate tax. That trap, when the rules are changing so fast, you're trying to comply and you look bad, the tide is down, the ugly Losing firms are on the beach and so on. All this comes together. You see many failures. And, of course, um, tying into that was the scapegoating of the old business leaders. Insel, how did he raise money? He leveraged like crazy. He levered beyond rational rationality. He 
um, expose his Chicago and national shareholders to risk, risk that we might not find acceptable. But it was also a leveraging of optimism, of hope that growth would continue at the rate which it had, had moved before. And now the tide was out. He was caught on the beach. His shareholders lost their money. He had hopes of reviving his company. Instead, he's the star scapegoat. He's in court just about until he dies. He's often exonerated in court. Chicagoans are very loyal to insult. But you, you see the cartoons from the period. Once, as soon as he's done with one case, he's back in court, another case. Um, and that was a, a terrible symbol for investors because it said, if you innovate, you may fall, as Insel has. Um, Mellon also, likewise, the old Greenspan is in court. The entire 1930s, whether it's on tax issues that I spoke of, taking deductions to which he was legally entitled, establishing trusts that were under the law good and also... Uh, created in the name of a philanthropic gift, the National Gallery here in Washington. He's in court the whole time, and there's an air of, it's a crisis, we have to get him. And the high point for Mellon, the, the real most beautiful diss by Mellon, came on his 80th birthday when reporters ran up to him and said, how does it feel, Mr. Mellon, I'm paraphrasing now, in, in, in the perpetual crisis, how do you feel on your 80th birthday, and here we are, the U.S. economy, maybe the U.S. Is coming, economy is coming down together, maybe the industrial age is just substantively different and we have no bright future. And as you can imagine, the administration had a little bit of a stake in it staying that way. It was a crisis administration, the New Deal. And Mellon said, oh, gee, gentlemen, little black, uh, sort of halfway between a cigar and a cigarette, little black, tiny. And he's smoking on that. And he says, gee, gentlemen, to me, this, this is just a bad quarter hour in the glorious history of American growth this period, this depression. So he would saying is your crying wolf is, is unjustified. And he was right. And his optimism was important to investors. But when Mellon died in August of 1937 um, in Southampton on Gin Lane at his daughter Elsa's house, what happened? The market crashed. That was the depression within the depression of 37, 38. And we have all sorts of monetary reasons that we know that this is so having to do with reserve requirements or the beginning of Social Security. And um, in fact, some of the work of Dr. Romer um, at the CEA is about the monetary, the, these monetary components to the sharp downturn, the depression within the depression. But I certainly argue that the intimidation of business was also a factor in that period. And they knew it. People began to walk away from the table. I'll read you a, a few quotes from the period, including from, again, I, I can't recommend Anderson too much. When I found him, I was able to write this book because he had documented it before for all of us. A great many men simply withdrew from the market rather than have the details of their transactions thus inquired into by government. Or Lamont Dupont, Uncertainty, again that word, uncertainty rules the tax situation, the labor situation, the monetary situation, and practically every legal situation under which industry must operate. Um, when Anderson finished his book, uh, he summed up magisterially and he says, preceding chapters have explained the Great Depression of 1930 to 1939 as due to the efforts of the government and very especially of the government of the United States to play God. Or we could, to put it in the monopoly terms, play the bank too aggressively. 
even Keynes um, saw this writing to Roosevelt and Roosevelt's episodic prosecution, persecution of the utilities industry, either nationalize them or leave them alone. What's the use of chasing them around the lot every other week? What's germane for us today? Or um, also on business, I like very much Keynes to FDR. It is a mistake to think businessmen are any worse than government officials. (laughs) Even Roosevelt knows this. If you go back and look up capital strike, you'll see he expressed that word. He was cross. He couldn't see how would they dare go on strike, not cooperate. Um, Or um, Eleanor to Franklin. Franklin, why are they doing this? Franklin, they are afraid of you. The consequences, you know, um, there are plenty of Roosevelt rallies. 1933 is a big, strong Roosevelt rally. Um, But as an experience, when I think of recovery, and I think you too, you don't think of how you did versus the year before. You think of how you did getting back to the, the start level, which would be 29. And by that math, it was a calculus of frustration, the always recovering but never recovered economy. The 1930s, um, the math, you look at the Dow, the Dow does not come back until the 50s, um, mid-50s, in fact. So that would be like 2032 or 2033 or 2034 for us um, on the Dow, not a prospect any politician would endorse as as, uh, favorable. Um, unemployment. The unemployment is the tragedy of the period. You, you know, you can have um, the math that the government uses, and there's been some dispute about this. But I use the data that Dr. Romer uses, or that the BLS uses, and those data say the unemployment rate averaged around 15 percent or higher. If you use more charitable data that includes some of the short-term make-work jobs, well, you can get a little bit lower, but you certainly don't average anything close to 10 percent. In short, numbers that of which any politician would be ashamed. Um, GDP doesn't come back. Uh, so GDP per capita. I do per capita. GDP doesn't come back. GDP, real GDP per capita doesn't come back. 39. It's, a, it's, a, it's an astoundingly poor record for the United States. And what I'm really saying today is there are monetary factors. That's the old story we learned. But there are these monopoly board non-monetary factors as well. So uh, when I look at what's going on today, I, I do, again, think of the Monopoly Board. What is the bank doing? What is our bank, the central bank, Chairman Bernanke, doing? What is he doing to the other banks? What is, what is the Treasury, our other bank, doing? How much is the bank intervening? How much is necessary? Are we stretching Walter Badgett all out of recognition by using his name, invoking his name to do some of the things we've been doing? Absolutely. Um, Taxes, we can reliably sense that they're going up, but we don't know when. There's elements of retroactivity already, especially in state actions. Um, Clearly, that's a new and broad uncertainty. The labor price um, is quite affected um, when you think of recovery, not merely when it comes to labor unions or Buy America provisions in pieces of legislation, but also um, with mandates via health care, I, I mean, when you ask yourself, um, really, what is the obstacle to rehiring? Because now is the moment when the rehiring should begin to begin. It's health care, isn't it? As much as some, some other factor, such as, for example, unions. Um, regulation. 
quite arbitrary, the picking of losers, as we're seeing with the automakers this week in this astounding way. Um, So, you know, you're giving Park Place to one group. You're taking another property from someone else. Um, The story of the 30s is not the story of a depression only. It's the story of a recovery that chose to stay away. And I look now at our recovery and say, is it choosing to stay away? You may want to ask, are there any meters that one could favor, if one, aside from playing Monopoly 2, think in the way that I am thinking, which is much more about property rights and um, less about Keynesian measures. I'm not very happy with consumer confidence because it's a, it's a disingenuous measure. Does the shopper want to shop today? Will he never think about it? And the one that struck me very much is one put together by um, Paola Sapienza of Kellogg Northwestern and Luigi Zingales of Chicago Booth, which they've made their own meter, um, which they call the Financial Trust Index, but it's really a meter of how reliable is the bank at the Monopoly Board. What they do is ask households, they treat households not as shoppers, not as consumers, but as producers, which is um, also interesting and important. And they survey at their Financial Trust Index, these households, and say, how much do you feel um, that you can trust the stock market as a place to trade? How much do you trust the bond market? How much do you trust... So- some other financial institution in your life or some other marketplace, how much do you trust the government? And on their trustometer, the financial trust index, this new index, they found that people really don't trust the government. So my bet is that recovery comes when this uh, Sapienza Zingalitz Chicago trust meter begins to show that people have a sense the bank won't ruin the game or will at least manage a game that they can live with. Recovery comes at the moment when we want to come back to that table. Thank you very much. All right, we have about uh, 15 minutes for uh, questions and answers. Do we have, yes, we have someone with a microphone. Just raise your hand uh, and when Amity points the microphone will come to you and identify yourself and have a, hopefully a brief question. Hi, my name is uh, Adam Brickley. I'm uh, with CNSNews.com. And uh, putting uh, what's going on, especially today, timely with uh, GM in uh, context uh, of the Great Depression, A, historically speaking, would you say that it's fair to define these actions as going towards socialism? And B, you know, what authority is President Obama, do you think he's using to try to nationalize, and does that have a historical precedent? I'm, I'm thinking we're seeing a level of intervention we've rarely seen in the United States. They did shut the stock market down in World War One. So we've had interventions in in wartime. It's rare for a peacetime. Um, that that's the main point. And um, again, you know, it, when you move the pieces around on the board this much, that's problematic. Is that that a short answer? What to, or the longer answer? Okay. No, that's fine. Up there. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Burris, DU Law School. I was wondering if you had any comments about uh, the way that the 
depression is being used as sort of a rhetorical totem with each side sort of the left sort of ignored it for a while but now they bring it back as as obama brings in new plans and people like paul krugman want to say that the that roosevelt did make positive changes as opposed to world war ii ending the depression if you had any comments about how it just sort of goes back and forth on what actually happened well i i the main point would be that um, to love the New Deal too much is a form of um, nostalgic self-indulgence that we can't afford. We, we can love certain things about it that were important to our parents. We know someone who got a job out of the New Deal who might have been hungry, who found Roosevelt's voice inspiring. This is true with all politicians and political periods, that they have something very good in them to remember that is part of us in our childhood. But to overdo it... Uh, and and get all pathetic or is too risky for the United States right now, given that we are an interna- in an internationally competitive marketplace. So if all the other countries were flat on their back, we could have a happy New Deal memory and reconstruct the New Deal and be fine with that. Um, in a way, um, some of the license we had in the 50s had to do with the fact that other countries were flat on their backs. So if we had high labor price, that was all right, because we really were making the best cars. We can't afford that anymore. So it's a, it's, um, it's, it's fibbing to oneself to say that we can afford this and that it will take us all forward. On the contrary, it will hurt us. And I remember the other part of the other gentleman's question, are we coming towards socialism? I would not say yes to that. I am much more concerned about what we might call state capitalism. You don't even need to say socialism. State capitalism is bad enough. What is the consequence of state capitalism? It's a lower growth trajectory than the U.S. is accustomed to having. It's a lower standard of living. And uh, comes along with it a kind of uh, junk GDP. We have GDP growth that might look good, but is not optimal in terms of productivity, in terms of, um, therefore, the standard of living, what we get out of the growth. So I, I'm concerned about junk GDP, lying to ourselves about the quality of our growth, and state capitalism. Thank you. Uh, I guess right here and then up there. I have Barbara Bowie Whitman. I have to confess that it's been a year since I read your book. In March, I was on a trip and reading um, the one about New Dealer, good New Dealer, raw, raw Dealer, whatever. It, that the title of the, the guy, the guy from Illinois. And I was struck at that time because Obama hadn't been in office as long as he has now. Thinking, good grief, the magnitude of what Roosevelt did is huge compared to what Obama's doing. Maybe we don't need to be quite so frightened. Today, I'm not as sure. I'd like your comparison about the, the radical nature of, of intervention and, and, the, and the comparison, sort of relative degree. Well, you just want to think about the set point. Um, when Roosevelt expanded government, it was an unprecedented expansion. They had an illions moment when they went from millions to billions, that moment of sort of uh, suspension of disbelief. You can't believe you're talking about a new magnitude of money, and then you very quickly get used to it. Harold, Harold Icke said, I couldn't believe it, 3.3 billion. I couldn't believe it. If you go and read his diaries, and he said, then we just started to call it the 3.3, and they dropped the alien word, and they became very quickly comfortable with their billions, um, as we're becoming comfortable in an analogous moment to trillions instead of billions. But when you want to look at 
it was unprecedented relative to what they had spent before. But how big was the federal government as a share of GDP in this big spending year when Roosevelt runs for office 1936? I believe it's 9 or 10 percent of GDP. And even Ronald Reagan, if you look um, at rest in peacetime at U.S. spending under small, so-called small government Republicans, you'll see an average of 18, 19 percent that Dan and I grew up with. We used to have a chart, the 18 or 19 percent chart at the Wall Street Journal to show that government could never get bigger than 20 percent of GDP because then there'd be political rebellion or something. <laughs> that chart has to be thrown away. And now we're much, much higher than that. So in that sense, we've gone farther, but you can't certainly lay it all on President Obama or even President Bush. It's part of the increase in government that followed World War II. Um, and the arrival of Medicare and great society and so on. And if we're that much closer to government being too big, you can't blame it all on the recent presidents. Likewise, you have to blame it on our whole post-war um, disingenuousness. All right, uh, back in the left and then back in the right. Back on the, on the left and the back. Oh, hi, Bert. Yes, there were a lot of fragilities with banks that had to do with regulations. I do not address this in the Forgotten Man book just because I didn't I, – I, I found um, that banking had been done so well by so many colleagues that I wanted to focus more on other areas. But, of course, there were perversities and changes. The gold standard, um, of course, ended for about a year with FDR. He also, more importantly, abrogated – the gold clauses, which said something terrible. What it said is, I, the president, am going to arbitrarily change the value of your contract that you've made either with the government or with another man. So there are all um, kinds of things like that that I should have spent more time on in The Forgotten Man. But after 480 pages, I thought I was taxing enough. All right. I guess uh, last question, the, the second row in the back there. S Sally, as a Scot, is being very diligent about keeping us on time, so I was warned this is the last question. McLaughlin, IEI. Uh, <clears throat> as a, a cancer researcher who's been trying to study in my spare time economics, uh, especially in the last uh, 10 months, I'm just shocked. Speak up a little bit. I'm shocked, and, uh, and I was struck by the multitude of schools of thought and, and all these things that to me are red flags of a very weak side. It's, it's reminiscent of sociology in the 60s where they thought they had things figured out and they, they in fact had nothing figured out. And I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure who knows anything. 
I'm not impressed by anybody. Well, I, I'm not sure who knows anything either, which is, you. I mean, you, you start with a skepticism. We um, grew up with two very distinct schools of thought. One was Keynesianism, which um, oversimplified, said um, the, the consumer mattered a lot, demand mattered a lot, and spending mattered a lot, especially um, also spending that emanated from him and his mood. Um, and then we also grew up with monetarism, which um, which had to do with money supply, and it was always about the amount of money, how much money. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and neither of these suffice for me to explain the 1930s. So, uh, and in fact, I found um, that I'm supposed to be more on the monetary end of it because I'm a markets person and I grew up with Milton Friedman, but I found the monetary explanation. Um, too much obscuring some other explanations. That's why I like this. I, you, you think I'm crazy. I keep mentioning this this other this author uh, Benjamin Anderson of Chase, but he told the point the story of the 1930s from the point of view of the firm micro. It's also a battle of micro versus macro, and the micro people have more to say than they've been allowed to say about this period. Uh, and he w always came back to the firm. The firm doesn't want to spend. Well, that matters. And it seemed so crucial to me, and it wasn't in what we'd learned. Um, the way it, to close with a medical analogy, because you're in medicine, um, the uh, principal economists who work in this area are like cardiologists. They're the best economists. They're accustomed to a lot of respect, but, and they operate routinely in uh, very dangerous situations where the patient could die. So when the patient has cardiac arrest or something equally dramatic, their natural tendency is to say, get back, I'm in charge, how dare you enter the operating theater? And the problem is, if you want to stick to that analogy, sometimes the patient is, has an endocrine problem. <laughs> he doesn't need a new valve. He doesn't need... He has a problem that is very, very serious and life-threatening that isn't what it seems to be. And that's the problem with, with econ. We're not sure uh, whether, you know, whether it's vascular or whether it's endocrine or what is it. And... Um, you're quite right. I agree, and I'm sure Dan agrees. It's, there's a lot of chaos in the area relative to the area where you work. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. We're going to make a seamless transition to the next panel.